0: Let's pray and we'll get started, okay? Father God, we love you. We love your word. We we love every word of it. Father, we just pray that you'll enrich our lives as we study it tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're in Exodus 27. Remember, when we study all of this, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament gives us the right to examine the tabernacle in light of Christ. Uh, so, so we do that. We, we know something that these people didn't know. Uh, but their hundreds of years of worship uh, and the ministry of the priesthood and so forth have been a great help to us as we study it from, from the New Testament perspective. Now, with all that in mind, we're in Exodus 27, so let's get into it, all right? And you shall make the altar of acacia wood. Five cubits long, five cubits wide. The altar shall be square. Its height shall be three cubits. You shall make its horns on four corners. Its horns shall be from it. And you shall overlay it with copper or brass or bronze. You shall make its pots to remove its ashes its shovels and its sprinkling basins and its flesh hooks and its scoops. You shall make all of its implements of copper or of brass. And you shall make for it a copper grate or grating of netting work. Make, it on, make on the netting four copper rings on its four ends and you shall place it beneath the ledge of the altar from below. And the net shall extend downward until the middle of the altar, and you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and you shall overlay them with copper or brass, and its poles shall be inserted into the rings, and the poles shall be on both sides of the altar when it is carried. So here is one likeness of uh, the brass or brazen altar, uh, how he has described on how to make it. Now, the altar was not something that Moses created. This is a revelation from God. God revealed to Moses all of these things, including this, uh, this brazen altar, how it's to be made, how big, and so forth. Its position was to stand just inside the court gate if you were facing the tabernacle. Interestingly, it is the largest piece of furniture used in the worship, in the tabernacle. Uh, it was always open. It was never closed. So anytime an Israelite needed to atone for sin, the altar was always there. It was always available. It was always open. And uh, the priests would be there to assist and to carry to carry the worshiper, the Israelite, into the worship. This was the one place where the sacrifices were to be offered for God's people. There was no other place. Um, I want to quote here from another part of the scripture in Leviticus. God said that if anyone offers a sacrifice and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, which is where we are here just inside the brazen altar, to offer an offering to the Lord, the blood uh, blood shall... Let's see and doesn't bring it to the altar uh, to the tabernacle of the congregation to offer an offering blood is imputed to that man he has shed blood and that man shall be cut off from among, among his people in other words God has a valid reason for every stipulation of sacrifice dealing with sin and worship and he has a reason for this altar and the way that it's made and where it's to be placed any substitute is fatal That man's cut off, that means he's done away with. You can't substitute anything for the cross of Calvary. There's no substitute. So it was the same way then. Of course, it's the same way now. Made of wood, it signifies humanity. We've already studied that. But this has a brass covering instead of gold covering. The Ark of the Covenant is wood covered with gold. But this is wood covered with brass. Brass symbolizes the judgment that God has upon sin. So here's the box for sin. The worshiper symbolically transfers himself to the perfect, unblemished uh, sacrifice. And the sin, the sinner, everything... It's slain, the blood is spilled out, and uh, the thing gets consumed. Very important part of their worship. You shall make it hollow out of boards. As he showed you on the mountain, so shall they do. Make the courtyard of the Michigan or the tabernacle on the southern side, and there shall be hangings for the courtyard of twisted fine linen, 100 cubits long on one side. Its pillars shall be 20, and their sockets Twenty of copper. The hooks of the pillars and their bands shall be of silver. Okay, so another look. You can see the hangings of the tabernacle here on the outside, the outer wall, Um, outer wall here, here. Here's the gate right here. Uh, There is the brazen altar, and then there's the labor of cleansing. So just inside, it was always open, just inside, any point in time, a worshiper could bring sacrifice to atone for his sins. And so for the northern end, in the length hangings, 100 cubits long, in its pillars 20, sockets 20 of brass or of copper, hooks of the pillars and their bands of silver. Silver is the metal for redemption. Brass meets silver, and gold meets silver. We've talked a little bit about that previously, how the gold had places where it met silver. All right. The width of the courtyard on the western side, hangings 50 cubits, their pillars 10 and their sockets 10. The width of the courtyard on the eastern side, 50 cubits. The hangings on the shoulder shall be 15 cubits, their pillars three and their sockets three. And on the second shoulder there shall be 15 hangings, their pillars three and their sockets three. And at the gate of the courtyard shall be a screen of 20 cubits made of blue, purple and scarlet or crimson wool. Uh, So we've seen this already. Heaven, uh, royalty and sacrifice. Twisted fine linen, which is righteousness, the work of an embroiderer. Their pillars four, and their sockets four. All the pillars around the courtyard shall have silver bands, silver hooks, and copper sockets. Okay, another rendition of uh, of what it would uh, look like. Okay, so we keep going from there. The length of the courtyard shall be one hundred cubits, and the width. 50 by 50 cubits. The height of the hangings shall be five cubits of twisted fine linen and their sockets shall be copper. All the implements of the Mishkan or the tabernacles, for all its labor and all its pegs and all the pegs of the courtyard shall be brass, copper, brass, bronze. And you shall command the sons of Israel and they shall take you to the pure olive oil crushed for lighting to kindle the lamps continually. So the oil flows continually into the lamps. That's the design here in the tent of these lamps. In the tent of meeting outside the dividing curtain that is in front of the testimony, the ark, Aaron and his sons shall set it up before the Lord or before Yahweh. From evening to morning, and it shall be an everlasting statute for their generations, from the sons of Israel. All right, so here's a here are a couple more likenesses. If you want, that one's kind of blurry. Uh, pillar of fire out there in front. See all those little tents? Those are the tents or the or the dwelling places of the Israelites. Here's the way that you go in uh, to the tabernacle. Uh, let's see another. Look, I think we've looked at this before, but this has it again numbered out so that you can still keep it in your mind uh, what it was like. Now this rendition, here's the entrance curtain here. Uh, There's a sacrifice. There's the brazen altar where the sacrifice be made. Now this this artist makes a rendition so that there are slaughter tables available here. Here's the court of the tabernacle, the brazen laver. Now This is where the worshiper would always be and then from there uh, the priesthood would take over and then the innermost part the Ark of the Covenant back in here. Um, I, I have a, a an old book here. Let's see. Who wrote this book? Um, Irvin Hirschberg. He did a uh in in times past he did a uh an extensive study and a lot of scriptural cross references and i think he, he he makes some pretty good points uh and he he takes colors and numbers and 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 you know there is a biblical numerology you know what one means two three four what five means and so forth what seven means what six means so he, he cross-references all of this, and I'm just going to read uh, what he says about, uh, about this. I'm going to read parts of it, and I'm going to read the whole thing. God himself chose not only the place and the sacrifice, but also the material and the dimensions for the altar. He has several scriptural references here, Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, and then several chapters and verses within each. The wood typifying humanity reminds us that Christ became man for the express purpose of experiencing our infirmities and to minister, quote, to minister, give his life a ransom for many, close quote, that's in Mark 10. Again, from Hebrews 4, For we have not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. He continues, The length and breadth, five cubits four square, reminds us of the grace of God equally available to all mankind. Now, five is the number of grace for those who study those kinds of things. Four is the number of complete direction. Every direction, everywhere. Uh, So, he says uh, says here that... uh, It reminds us of how the grace of God is equally available to all mankind. Horns in the Bible, and he has several scripture references here, illustrate power. I think we've talked about that before. Horns on every corner of this altar probably symbolize the power of the blood, the power of the sacrifice. So you have the altar and then you have a horn, here, and it all happens inside where the horns are. Uh, Representing the power of the blood Uh, the power of the sacrifice that's being made and how it is available and equally efficacious for all people worldwide. So here it is. Um, Let's see. Christ, through the eternal spirit, offered himself without spot to God, Hebrews 9, 14. Um, other scriptures, he says, these tell us that all three persons of the Trinity were involved at Calvary. The altar, uh, being three cubits high, may be a hint of the Trinity's involvement. Now that's his guess. He doesn't have any biblical references to draw on here, but the number three um, would seem to would seem to reference Father, Son, and uh, and Holy Spirit. The wood and the horns being overlaid with brass typifies judgment. Calvary was a manifestation of God's necessary judgment upon sin. The sinless Son of God is, quote, the just for the unjust, 1 Peter 3, verse 18. Uh, And He was the only being with a capital B In the universe, qualified to offer a sacrifice sufficient for our atonement. The net or the grate that was on the top of the, that's on top of the brazen altar, was of solid brass, solid brass, no wood there. So it was capable of bearing the heat of the fire that would be lit from time to time. And Exodus 27 in verse 5, you may recall, says, You shall put it underneath the compass of the altar that is beneath it, that the net may be even to the middle of the altar. Mid-altar would denote the inner anguish of the Christ who cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In Matthew 27 verse 46. Halfway down also puts the grate to the same height as the table and the ark. Table fellowship, that is the showbread table uh, and the Ark of the Covenant. Table fellowship and the mercy seat were both made possible because of Calvary. That's interesting. Put it on the same height. Um, Exodus 29, we haven't gotten there yet, but he's he's quoting Exodus 29 verse 37. Seven days you shall make an atonement for the altar and sanctify it, and it shall be most holy. Seven days of sanctification indicates to us the importance of of this altar this brazen altar okay to repeat and to and to consider once again this is where the people of god had their their sins atoned for this is where they brought their their sacrifice uh there was only one way to get to it and that was that open is it is this still upright yeah okay only way in right there the first thing when you go in is that altar. You had to deal with it before you, before you, went, before you could have fellowship with God or worship or anything. You had to deal with sin. It's very important. So the importance of atonement for sin has been embedded in the souls and spirits of God's people from time immemorial. We are sinners and our sin needs to be dealt with and only God can tell us how to have our sins dealt with. And there's only one way to do it. There are not two ways. There's only one way to have our sins atoned for. So this is the earliest lesson here. Uh, and, and of course, that lesson is made incarnate in Christ in Christ Jesus. Now, we keep thinking here from verse uh, 17 uh, to make the laver of brass. No, I'm sorry. We haven't gotten there yet. That's Exodus 30. We haven't gotten there yet, so I'm not going to. I'm not going to say anything about uh, about that. All right. Once again, let's consider. This is just so important, I think, for us to always have a, a grasp, a mental grasp. This is referenced a lot later on. You study chronicle. You study the time of Solomon. You study the temple, but the but the temple is not that much different, really, than the tabernacle. It's just that the temple has permanent walls instead of these these cloth-type walls that are easily taken down. The temple would be a permanent structure. So all that is here, all of those days, all of that time that God spent with Moses giving him these details, this has to be meaningful for the people of God in, in my view in both Testaments. Especially, as I say once again, how Hebrews... Points to us, points out to us the fact that this whole thing, everything, every part of this whole thing, is representative of the ministry, life, service, person of Christ. This is how we. This is how we get to God. This is how God's people come to Him. This is this is what's so important. Uh, it starts out with judgment on sin. Everything is brass, and then there's a little silver in there. There's redemption and then the silver from the brass. Also, silver meets the gold, which is God, the deity, uh, all the way into the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, where the blood is spilled once a year on the Day of Atonement, and God accepts it and, and announces or declares atonement uh, for His people. Extraordinarily important uh, for us to keep this in mind um, in, in this study really in the whole study of the Old Testament, but even in the study of the New Testament, um, because it's a picture book. It's a, and, and, you know, even, even adults love picture books, right? <laughs> um, the picture book of how we're out here and we want fellowship with what's here and we want the blessing of what's here. So how do we get from here to here? We can only get there If what's or who's in here tells us how to get there. That's the only way we can't make it up ourselves. So the details are given to Moses. And these would have been taught. I'm convinced that these details would have been taught to the people continually in their time of worship, um, when they were when they had to go. And boy, that would be pretty hard work for these priests if you think of. The hundreds of thousands, millions, the millions, the two million maybe or so, Israelites, <laughs> and, and the constant need for having sin atoned for, uh, this would be a busy place. It would be a bloody place too. Um, and it would be powerful, powerful images, powerful images symbolizing what the worshiper is experiencing. I'm thinking that I'm thinking. Well, there would have been certain times that that was true, yes. But I don't think that was necessarily a requirement. I think, I think everybody should have experienced it. We, I, I I can't remember right off the top of my head where just going in. I think uh, now only the high priest could go in here on the holy on the uh, day of Atonement, and he was representative of everybody. Uh. Proxy worship, proxy worship, and atonement for sin—that would only happen. We take Passover for example. Uh, Everybody had to experience Passover, so uh, I think it was important for kids. We'll probably get to that instruction—not in not in Exodus necessarily, but it's been so long since I've taught Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Um. (laughs) But I'm thinking that ordinarily it's a family affair, and then on certain festivals or feasts, head of household would be accepted. You know, we're studying First uh, Samuel, and on certain times, just the hu- just just the man went in. You know, and other times they would all go in. So uh, I think it was according to what the occasion was. But I would expect that just on common the common experience of having atonement for sin i'd I'd want my kids in on that you know uh let them let them see what it was all about all right, so we've finished uh this part of exodus. I wasn't going to go any further uh with exodus tonight. we will look just briefly at, at, the, um, at, at what is said after verse 8, let me, let me cover some of this just briefly and quickly. The outer court, this is still from this man's writings that I, that I have found intriguing. I thought he did a lot of thoughtful study on it. The outer court separated the worship center from the outside world. Christians are in the world but not of the world, John 15, John 17. John 17. They are set apart for God's purchased, as God's purchased property and peculiar treasure, which of course means special discipline in keeping with the unique calling that God places in our lives. He has several passages here. Around the court stood 60 pillars of brass, or wood overlaid with brass. Um, the, the less than 71 talents of brass recorded in Exodus 38, we haven't gotten there yet, uh, 29 through 31 would not have sufficed for the labor, the grate and vessels of the altar, nearly 200 tent pins, 65 sockets, plus 60, 60 pillars of solid brass, seven and a half feet high. The pillars are not even named among the items that are used for most of the brass. So we assume that the court pillars were overlaid, were wood overlaid with brass. Wood typifies humanity. If the boards standing shoulder to shoulder represent the church as the corporate body of Christ, the pillars around the court may symbolize the individual believers displaying Christ to the world. Indeed, upholding a fine linen hanging, Revelation 19.8, which says, The fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. The church stands in sockets of silver, which is, the, which is for atonement. But as individuals, each one still stands alone, each in his own socket of brass, which is judgment. This illustrates what we already know, that in the final judgment, each person stands alone in a fixed position, too late to change. Each one to be answerable for his own state of being. No one hiding behind another, no passing of blame to another. Which would lend to my belief that Atonement is a is a family affair. Everybody, you know, everybody has to. Sixty brazen pillars, standing in sixty sockets of brass, crowned with silver, which is atonement. Atonement, judgment moves to atonement, and then of course the silver later on joins the gold, which moves to the presence of God. There was this is interesting to me. There was not an ounce of gold in the outer court. The gold was all confined to the vessels, the boards, pillars, and hooks, either inside or attached to the tabernacle structure, and well covered with four coverings upon it. The most prominent materials in the court were brass and wood, but at the top, above the fine linen hanging, were silver uh, chapiters. What's that? You're supposed to know these things. Yeah. And f- fillets, F I L L E T S. Filet? <laughs> Mignon. <laughs> it's built. It's built. It's built. It's what's fillet. No. Okay. It's been so long since I've done woodwork, you know. <laughs> okay. well it's been a real long time since I welded something <laughs> uh, okay and hooks okay let me go back silver chapters fillets that's how you say it fillets and hooks typifying atonement through Christ's incarnate incarnation who gave his life in judgment for our sins and arose victorious over sin and death The fillets of silver, speaking of atonement, carried the weight of the linen hanging, which is righteousness. You see, our righteousness in Christ depends entirely upon redemption through Him. Apart from redemption, we have no righteousness. The silver hooks at the top of the pillars were for the ropes that anchored the pillars to the pins of brass. Now, that was in verse 19, I think driven into the ground like tent stakes. Each pillar was held securely erect. We, too, need to be anchored in our Lord Jesus Christ. Without Him, we are as insecure as those pillars would have been without an anchor. The humanity, humanity typified by the wood in the boards and pillars may include believers as the body of Christ, while the gold and brass, respectively, may represent Christ as both our King and our Judge. He who gave himself as a suffering servant, typified by the scarlet, and consecrated high priest, typified by the ram's skins dyed red, will just as surely be our judge and our king. The Bible does not specifically say on which side of the hanging the pillars stood. Some pictures show them outside the hanging, which mars the typology Their purpose is to hold up that fine linen, the righteousness of the saints. One who is not in Christ has nothing to do with righteousness. If the pillars represent believers upholding Christ for the world to see, they must at least be on the inside. Otherwise, they could not display Christ. Being crowned with silver chapters denotes atonement, which cannot be obtained on the outside. Therefore, it seems imperative that the pillars stand on the inside. I think that's an interesting. Uh, yeah. could you spill a piece of the floor on which the roof rests? Okay. Uh, uh, <laughs> all right, let's see. Um, <laughs> these These were all included in the 60 pillars and sockets around the court and apparently were identical with them. The hanging of the gate, which represents Christ, was distinctively different from the pure white hanging of the court. In fact, the Hebrew word masach is used exclusively for the four-colored embroidered linen used at the three entrances, which was the gate, the door, and the veil. The word for the plain white hanging of the court is chela, The gate, the door, and the veil all bore the four prominent colors that portray the various aspects and attributes of our Lord and Savior. Blue, declaring his heavenly origin, John chapter 8, verse 23. Purple, his royalty, the Revelation chapter 19, verse 16. And the scarlet, his suffering and death, Isaiah 53. And fine linen, his righteousness, 1 John 2, verse 29. Jesus towers above all others exclusively unique as holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. Hebrews 7 verse 26. The gate, door, and veil are a threefold united emphasis that Jesus is truly the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man ever comes to the Father but by Him. John fourteen six. Each has its own unique emphasis as well. The gate is only half as high as the door and the veil, but it's twice as wide. The altar, which is a type of Calvary, is just inside the gate. The invitation to Calvary, redemption, is wide open, one one and all, to one and all, as suggested by the double width. Our yards may be entered by way of a gate, but the house by way of a door, which is truth. Not everything that enters at the gate continues into the house. Matthew 13, and several verses in Matthew 13. The second passageway is the door. Only half as wide, but twice as high as the gate. The purpose and character of the door is twofold. Designed to admit entrance and to prevent entrance. The same is true of Christ. He prevents the entrance of sin, and those who choose sin rather than the way of the cross cannot enter where Christ reigns supreme. Some enter the gate by an outward profession, not willing to follow through with the crucified life. The closer one comes to the Lord, the more the path narrows. Only the narrow way leads to heaven, the broad way ever leads to hell. The third passageway is through the veil, which signifies the death of Christ and tells us that we too must die to self before before we can be His disciple. Mark 8, Luke 14. He who presently is the door to the sheepfold will eventually be our judge. Acts ten forty two. Abiding crucified with Christ, Galatians two twenty assures entrance through the veil. The, quote, new and living way. Refusing the crucified life is cause enough to prevent entrance when the judge of all the earth calls his children home. So that guy did a pretty good, I thought he did a pretty good study and, uh, Worthy of uh, reflection. I'm going to stop there. Let's pray. We'll be done for tonight. Father God, we love you. Thank you for showing us Jesus everywhere, all through your word. And thank you for bringing us to him that we might be saved. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.